I'm Mitch Owens, and welcome to the AD Esthete, the style broadcast of Architectural Digest, where I'm the decorative arts editor. Wellness is all the rage in design and architecture, the shaping and design of spaces that encourage us to be our best selves. And at the top of this genre is Irish-born, Manhattan-based designer Coda, a woman whom I greatly admire and am delighted to call a friend. On this episode of The AD Esthete, Coda joins me from her country place in upstate New York to talk about her youthful success as a fashion designer in Dublin, her later transition to interior design as a newlywed expat in Spain, and how her feel-good philosophy of design, incorporating everything from feng shui to biophilia, is manifested in a range of high-profile projects, including apartment house lobbies in New York City and deluxe spa retreats in Portugal and beyond. I hope you enjoy the show. Cloda, uh, you know, interior design is thought of in many ways as a, a sort of superficial art. And what's always impressed me about your work is that there's a real depth and meaning behind it from the point of view of wellness. And I'd love for you to be able to address when did that become part of your philosophy as a designer? I mean, what... When did you see that rising either in your life or, or the world? Well, actually, it rose in my life when I was a teenager. I broke my back when I was 15, and I was on my back for many, many months. And uh, I was really messed up physically. And um, I realized my room wasn't working. I had to be flat on my back. My arms would ache holding the book up and <laughs> to read. <laughs> and I started to think about our animals because my father was relentless with his care for animals, uh, feeding the dogs exactly the right food and the horses exactly the right food so they would jump higher and run faster. And I thought, why can't we apply that to human beings? So I would think it started when I was 15, going on 16. Mm -hmm. And then when I was on my back, I decided not to do what my father wanted me to do, which was to go into university, to Trinity College Dublin, and specialize in classics and mathematics, because that's what his brother was doing. And as I was lying on my back, I saw a newspaper, the Irish Times, there was an ad saying, why not be a dress designer? And I thought, well, why the heck not? <laughs> so I opened my business when I was 17 with the absolute courage born of total ignorance. So ignorant was I that actually it's quite funny because my bank manager asked to see my books. So I brought down what I was reading to see. <laughs> to <show him. laughs> Why, Mr. Mooney, do you want to know what I'm reading? <laughs> now, you went into dress design with, did you go into any training for that at all? I'm basically pretty well untrained. I did a six weeks pattern cutting course. My mother gave me 400 pounds and I opened a tiny little studio on South Anne Street in Dublin and hired the best tailor I could find. For some reason, I've always had to, the instinct to hire people who are better than myself. And uh, somebody in the Irish Times who had seen a little, little vignette I'd put together at the pattern cutting school said when I opened my, my little store, they said, um, 
how would you feel about doing a show for the Irish Cancer Society in the Hibernian Hotel? Being me, my motto is, why not? And I said, why not? <laughs> and I did. And it got an enormous amount of publicity, including in the States. And my career sort of bulleted out from there. And you were a dress designer for, for how many years? Oh, quite a while, like um, eight, nine, ten years. And what was interesting about it, because of my feeling about helping people to stay well, you know, I would use uh, natural materials, um, materials mm. that flowed easily, that were low maintenance, made the body look good, allowed people to move comfortably in their, in their clothes. And it was, it was very successful. And at what time did you either tire of designing clothes and decide to go into interiors? Well, I got married uh, when I was quite young, very, and I had three boys, and um, the marriage wasn't going so well, and I was getting tired of fashion. It didn't seem to be big enough for me. So um, I changed husbands, countries, and careers and went to Spain. <laughs> <laughs> I met a guy in Spain. I was down there getting over the se legal separation I had from my marriage. And I met a guy who I'm still married to. The delightful Mr. Aubrey. The delightful Mr. Daniel Aubrey. <laughs> Is that when interior design started well, what, for you? What, was in Spain, really? What happened was that we decided to live in Spain for a while. I came to New York for a year. Decided to live then in Spain for a while. I have very high energy at work. And... Um, I didn't know what to do with myself in Spain. I didn't speak the language. He did fluently. The Irish never shut up, so I was excluded from all conversations. So I didn't feel so good about it. And I said to him, Daniel, why don't I... We've just bought this townhouse, and it's a mess. It's all full of little cubicles and stuff like that. Why don't I find an architect and we'll fix it up? And I'll take care of it and learn Spanish while I'm taking care of it. So... Um, I fought with the architect because he didn't seem to understand how people lived. I'd, I'd, I'd had a lovely Georgian house in Dublin, Georgian, Georgian farmhouse. And I felt I'd, I know, knew how people lived and entertained and so on. And I kept saying, Antonio, you don't walk the whole way through the living room to go to the dining room, the other side of the building from the kitchen. <laughs> and I'd take the drawings and draw over them. And the day demolition started, we had 14-foot-high shutters looking out into this old square. There was dust everywhere, and light came in and struck the dust, and it was like the Annunciation. It hit me on the shoulder. I knew exactly what I was going to do, and I said to Danielle when he came home, you know that office downstairs, that retail space? I'm going to start a design business down there. And, and, and by that, you meant no more fashion, only interiors. Exactly, exactly. I, I know that the wellness was with you, the, the philosophy of wellness in design had been with you since you were 15 on your back and recovering and went through your fashion career. How did that manifest itself in the interior design career that you were just starting out with? Well, it's all about studying how bodies move through space and how they sit and how they relax and how they have fun. So it was very easy for me because I'd been studying the way the body moved for fashion, but it's the same body actually that moves through a living room or a kitchen. And also I irritate easily if things aren't in the right place. <laughs> so uh, 
So I designed my kitchen so that I could, I love to cook, so I could cook quickly because I like to do things very fast. I designed the kitchen very carefully and made a communication through this really thick wall into the dining room. So you had a kind of pasta and it worked beautifully and people loved it. And uh, there I was. And then uh, what was quite funny, actually, I, when the day I hung out my sign, the doorbell rang. And I went down, this very cute Spanish guy, and he said to me, are you the English designer? I'm looking for an English designer to design my pub. And I said, no, no, I'm very sorry. I'm not, you know, I'm an Irish designer. Well, he said, close enough, come and design my pub. <laughs> so I raced back upstairs. And I said to Danielle, I've made a date to meet this guy an hour's drive away. I'm out of my mind. I don't know what I'm doing. And he said, just do it. <laughs> so I did the pub. Very easy for an Irish woman to do the pubs, by the way. Lot of experience. <laughs> and how long did you stay in Spain before setting up shop in New York? We were seven years in Spain. I, um, I speak Spanish fluently after all that. And I speak French fluently because my husband was, was French, but didn't, or is French, but we didn't speak French at home. But his cousin came to work with me and he didn't, he didn't speak English or Spanish. So we communicated through my schoolgirl French. So I had a design career and a linguistic career. <laughs> I had a lot of fun, actually. My father-in-law had said to me, the best way to learn a language is to read the poetry of the country out loud. And then you get the cadence of a language. Just use your ears because sound is very important to me. And I found that worked. I think you saying that sound is very important to you. I, I think so much of your design as I'm familiar with it through spas and restaurants and hotels and obviously residential as well, is this, it's a very sensory experience, your interiors. I mean, it's, it's, it's oral, it's textural, the, the, the palette, everything is of a universe that I, I identify very much with you. Well, I don't want to exclude anything because we are a bundle of emotions and senses. And uh, emotions spur the senses and make you feel better or not better. <laughs> so my job is to incorporate um, all the elements also, earth, water, fire, wood, metal, and also address all the senses of anybody who's going to be in the space. We mm -hmm. also get the horoscope signs of all our clients. So we get a rounded picture. And in a sense, even if it's a hotel, it, it, it's the brand becomes, it, the brand sort of equals the person. Who is this mm -hmm. person? So I, when we're going through a project, we always address every single thing. Do we have the earth element in here? Do we have the water element in here? Do we have the biophilic elements? It's, mm -hmm. it's like a checklist when a pilot's getting into his cockpit, you know, he has a checklist. We're the same in, in our studio. How we address that element. This is missing the, a certain color it's it's too it's because again you're dealing with the chakra colors you know that, right so so you want to address the chakra colors and make sure that uh, everything is represented in some way that it's inclusive not exclusive and also this is cross-generational and cross um, nations you know, mm. culture is cross-cultural you know to get to have in our jobs we like to we like to include uh, uh, elements of other cultures so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very united approach in a sense 
Well, this is what I'm saying. When I, I think of your design, I think of it as being very holistic. I think you were, when I moved to New York years and years ago, not more than we'll talk about, um, and I think I learned about feng shui through you and through your interiors, because I know that, you know, these sort of, I, I don't know if metaphysical is the right word to use, but there are all of these intangibles that are part of what you do. Like you said, biophilia, chromotherapy, aromatherapy, feng shui. And that was really my first introduction to any of that was through your work. Cause I'd never, I never really knew about it. Yeah, I think that what I do is I make the invisible, in a sense, tangible. It's a sensation of space. I call it mm. the experience design, experiential design. Mm. How do people feel in the space? Are they going to be their best selves in this space, really supported by the space? I really, I don't like the hair and makeup approach to design. Right. <laughs> As I design from the inside out. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's also with, about people's health that uh, I study their bodies as they move around and ask them questions about their health so that the chair can be at the right height, the bed can be of the right consistency or, or, or with a certain universality about it for hotels, just going for mm -hmm. the, the bedroom that promotes sleep. I'm constantly studying the, uh, the woes of humankind and sleep deficiency is one of them. And loneliness is another one of them. So when I'm doing a hotel, I'll make places where people can be together in a very non-threatening way. They can, mm -hmm. it's a kind of communal space. I like what you said about the hair and makeup approach, because I think so many of us get wrapped up in the superficial attractions of a space as opposed to how it, it, it's supposed to be a container for living. And it should in, enhance that. I mean, it's 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 not mumbo jumbo, is what I'm saying. Oh, it's not it's not mumbo jumbo at all. I mean, I'm a country girl from the west of Ireland. If somebody had said to me that we could be doing what we're doing now, I would have thought it was mumbo jumbo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, cyber talking, cyber hugging, right. listening to music from another country three thousand miles away. It's uh. It's the, the, the air is carrying so much. Do you think that the design that you do helps in some ways to, I, I know we live in this universal world with these universal experiences and like we're doing now talking virtually on, on the podcast. Do you think a, a part of your design philosophy is to try to make that big world much smaller and much more intimate and to find yourself a place in it? Yes, I, I actually call it grounding people mm -hmm. because uh, very often as I'm flying in the, the, an aluminum bullet through 36,000 feet into the air, you know, somewhere between the earth and somewhere that none of us know, I feel so disconnected. I definitely use the, the grounding elements, both in fragrances and, and you know, heavy floors. Glass towers, for instance, can be very unsettling for people. The windows that go to the floor, you walk up to the window and suddenly you're out in space. We're, we're really animal. We have animal instincts, you know. We, we, uh, mm -hmm. we have a lot of fear. And if with grounding, 
grounding an element with a heavy floor, a heavy table where people can gather. It's, um, it really helps. Can you talk a bit about a project that you've worked on recently that, that stands out for you in terms of the use of, of fragrance and materials and uh, sound as well? Residential or, or a hotel? Well, I guess what, what a, or multifamily. Say, we do a lot of multifamily. Oh, let's talk about that. I think that's interesting. How do you mean multifamily? A single home for, or, or a building? No, um, I mean, how, how about three towers with 1,875 apartments? Okay, that would be um, multifamily. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so so tell, tell me about that. That's an enormous amount of apartments. That's an enormous amount of people. And you're trying to give them this sort of holistic experience well exactly so so what we're creating because with that number of apartments it could be easily four thousand people living in that building so i want this two there's two lobbies i want each and every one of them to walk in feeling they're walking into their own front yard that the space gives them a hug as they walk in and a feeling of homecoming it's not, it's not some designer doing outstanding things. It's, uh, it's uh, again, bringing in the fire elements and ele elements where people can gather and talk uh, using overscaled art and, uh, as light very often to make kind of glowing lanterns in the lobbies. Mm -hmm. And in this particular building, there's um, a five-floor amenities building, which has everything in it, including a, a double-height, full-height basketball court, indoor-outdoor pool, spa, you know, fitness, and so on. There's, there's something happening, I think, because people are moving so much. It's, 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 the people don't, uh, you know, in my parents' time, everybody had a house and they stayed there forever, more, more or less. Mm -hmm. now, now people, I come from a downwardly mobile family, so I moved a lot. But um, now people are moving a lot simply because they want to travel or they want to try other things and so on. So it's, it's giving them a feeling of... Um, comfort and joy where, where they actually are. So again, I take out my toolbox and I try to understand that uh, somebody with a small baby is living in a fairly small apartment, but actually they, they have come from a larger apartment, but because their husband or something is working in the city and they have to be there for a while, uh, they're in a smaller apartment with the baby. And I call that actually upsizing. When you leave a larger place and you're going to a smaller space in multifamily buildings, because suddenly you have this panorama, in this case, nearly 50,000 square feet of amenities, mm -hmm. which you don't have to take care of. The building takes care of the garden, of the pool and everything. You have the use of all that space. And I think that's the, the way the world is going. So within that lobby, you were talking about glowing lights. Would that have been the fire element? There is actually there is actually a fire as well as we behind the reception desk. There's an 18 foot wide, 13 foot high uh, screen of lights, glowing lights, which back the uh, reception person. But also we we built it with a very very long, big lobby, like 10,000 square feet. We also built little cabanas that you can actually meet a pal down in the lobby. With they've got outlets you can plug in your device. Or you can go by the fire and, and, and sit with your sweetie and have a glass of wine. And I remember the first day I went there when they were still in construction and people had moved in. 
I went for about five o'clock in the evening and there was a guy with his girlfriend sitting by the fire. They had, they bought, they'd bought a bottle of wine. There were two glasses and they were talking and laughing. And that just, so they were using this as an extension of their home. Exactly. That becomes their living space. And also if, if you're in a tight apartment and, I think people are going to understand this even better as we're in temporary isolation. <laughs> that, that, right. that sometimes you need to get out of your apartment and go to a place where you can just be yourself if you're not relying on your spouse or partner to, uh, to create your happiness because they're in bad mood. <laughs> no. No, I, I think it's really interesting now that the, the, this, the social isolation that we're all having to live through how much more focused one becomes on one's immediate space. What's working, what's not working, because you take things for granted so easily. I think that's what's happening is that uh, people are starting to challenge their inner space because when we're out working and running to get in an Uber and go to a meeting and this, that, and the other, we're in reactive time. Mm -hmm. So everything is reactive. I've discovered now since I'm in a little house in Beacon uh, that uh, definitely I'm going into my inner space. I do meditate, but sometimes it's not possible. You're, you're just repeating a mantra in the back of an Uber dead late for a meeting. But here it is <laughs> time to do that. And uh, I was thrilled to be able to watch the Fresilia and, and Magnolia, actually, a tree in the neighbor's yard, just opening every day, looking at it and saying, ah, it's almost there, almost there. <laughs> I mean, how often do we have time to watch a flower opening? So I think we can take advantage of that. We're going to come back into a very different world. People are more compassionate. People are reaching out from all over. I, th I think the me world is going to be a world world much more connected world after mm. this. And design also... Or meaningfully connected. I mean, I feel like we're always connected virtually in, in so many ways. But over-connected in the wrong ways, maybe. Mm. Yeah. So are you seeing things at your, your own house in Beacon right now that, that you're becoming more familiar with, more intimate with, and wondering how it can be refined or, or things that you would do differently? Well, we just moved into it before Christmas, and then I, <laughs> and then I hit a plane for Bangkok, and, a, and then another one. So we do, we don't even know washer dryer dryer yet. <laughs> no, no. So we're we're camping a little bit like adolescents with one of the spare bed is on milk crates at the moment. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but I am looking at it, and what I had thought of doing as an old house is actually changing slightly, but not that much. You see, I'm very much a minimalist. I, I give away, not throw away, but I give away any surplus stuff that I'm not using. Mm. It's, a, it's almost like a religion for me. And when I walk into a client's home, <laughs> I open their cabinets and closets, and I can tell a lot about how they live by the jamming of the closets or the cabinets. You know, sometimes they say, well, don't come, don't come for a couple of days. And I know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they're, getting, they're getting rid of stuff. So um, I'm very glad yeah. I'm a minimalist. I made, made the move more easy. But the thing is, your minimalism is actually very soulful and very full of, of life as opposed to emptying it of, of 
things. It, I don't know exactly how to describe that, but it's not like a, it's stripped down to nothing. It's really meaningful essentials. Exactly. Well, I love to cook, for instance. So for me, food and the kitchen, are, and I've, I've noticed with you too, <laughs> uh, that food and the kitchen are, are it's the heart of, a, heart of a house. Bedroom, the kitchen, lounge. I mean, the, the word living room appalls me. It's like you don't live anywhere else. <laughs> no, no, you're, that's absolute. You're, you're right about that. How much, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about um, growing up in Ireland. Um, how much of that life affects your sense of design now? Oh, it affects it very much. I was the smallest child in a difficult family and we kept moving because we, we were downwardly mobile. We started out in Oscar Wilde's house, which was lovely. Matura. Matura house. Yes. <laughs> you were just there, were you? How, would, how, how long did you live in Oscar Wilde's childhood home? Well, I was about eight when we left, but I cried all the way to the next house, which was the eighth uncle's house in Sligo. <laughs> we followed the writers. <laughs> but, but did those early houses have a have an impact on your idea of how one should live in a house? They did because, uh, because of the gathering places, uh, the, the way that, that, that Moitura was, um, I remember we always had fires because that's the way we kept warm. So mm -hmm. There was a fire in my nursery. I was toasting my bread on it with a toasting, with a toasting fork, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we, the nannies and everybody knew exactly what each flower was. They told us ghost stories. I mean, the spirits were rampant. And of course, Oscar had scratched his uh, name on his nursery window with his mother's diamond ring. So <laughs> he was there too. <laughs> but it's all about fairy rings and, and the energy of trees and um, composting and all the things that we now say are environmental. We were environmental, we just didn't know it. So this, <laughs> this, this was already part of your personal vocabulary before exactly. it became a formalized exactly. part of it. We didn't know, I didn't know that word. I remember I was asked to give a, a talk at Yale or Harvard, I don't remember what, where it was about biophilia, this is quite a few years back, and I said, I'm not awfully sure what that's all about. <laughs> they said, you're using it all the time. And uh, of course I was. Can you explain biophilia for well, bio listeners who might not be familiar with it? Well, biophilia is the positive effect of living things on humans, and the positive, positive effect also of human beings on each other. It's, it's, it's a life exchange. I think it was Bill McDonough who said that all living things are interconnected and interdependent. So biophilia is the, for instance, if you're, if you're from New York and you're listening to that, is that wonderful flash of joy you get when you're on 57th Street and you're walk, walking by Paley Pocket Park, the Sound mm -hmm. of Water and the Walls, or the new Gucci Garden right. in Queens, or just seeing a lovely window box. And it, it's, uh, it's, uh, you, when you, actually can, you can actually feel it. You know, it's a visceral thing. It's, uh, it's an exchange of energy. How does that enter into a, a, a design project, biophilia? Is it, is it through 
um, growing plants? Is it through any other sort of material or, or, I mean, how does that represent itself within a project? Well, we use a lot of living walls. Okay. So we're just finishing a project in Washington. Uh, that's, you know, where there's a massive living wall when you walk in. Mm -hmm. And in front of the living wall, there's a reception desk with uh, really thick wood from ancient trees. And you, you walk in and it's, and, and, and there's a place too in Manhattan. We've just done a similar project where there's a, where there's a living wall. It's, 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 it's giving people a vertical garden in a sense in, in the city. Right. I mean, the biophilia that we experience, if we go for a walk in the woods, we're all familiar with, right? <laughs> that lovely moment. Yes. Or you're walking by a creek or a lake. But uh, to actually do it in, in um, receptions, so you, you, again, you've got the feeling you're walking through your own front yard. And uh, you have to be careful with biophilia because you want to, you want to be able to take care of your plants. And feng shui dying plants are ter terribly bad feng shui. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, one of my mantras, if I were wearing, had a line of t-shirts, would be low maintenance. <laughs> no, it would be practically, would be bold letters on my t-shirt. And my other mantra would be, why not? I believe, I believe you can't always hesitate, so sometimes you must gallop forward and do things and I liken myself to a sensitive army tank, actually. I tried to get things done. <laughs> and Danielle, my husband, was standing beside me when I said that to somebody who was asking me to describe my character. And he said, not always that sensitive, Clodagh. <laughs> so I'll, fi I'll, fight to get, I'll fight to get these elements in because I know if they're there, people will feel better in the building I'm designing or in the home I'm designing. Even if it's a tiny tiny terrace in Manhattan. I'll get, I'll get, uh, I'll get uh, one of those boxes of ivy that you can buy that's like the ivy is pre-grown and it's on, it's on uh, wires, so it's about six feet tall and you already have a little vertical garden on your terrace. You're, you're offering an idea like that of, of a small terrace. It makes you realize that what sounds perhaps like a, 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 a sort of an impenetrable philosophy with lots and lots of different elements feeding into it is actually very simple. It really is. Our, our, my, in my home, I've got um, small boxes of, of uh, jade plants, right, which are also lucky, lucky money plants in China, <laughs> uh, running uh, 15 feet along, along the window, which gives out onto the Bowery. And it's, I've got my own window, window garden, and in my back terrace, which is tiny, I have, um, I have ivy growing in boxes and winding around the railings. So I can put my chair outside when I get home on a summer evening, or I can go up to the roof where everybody is sharing the terrace. And of course, there's plants up there, but I'm talking my own intimate personal garden. Right. There, I remember realizing how important plants are I mean, I grew up in a, a house full of basically spider plants and asparagus ferns everywhere. And I used to think it was just sort of dreadful when I grew up and I thought I'll never, ever have a house plant. Um, <laughs> uh, I just, it's too much trouble. And I was on a visit to Buenos Aires once and was walking down a street and for blocks and blocks and blocks, 
every balcony on either side of that street was a jungle. <laughs> Wonderful. People within this vertical city needed to have a forest around them. And it's funny, I've just come back from Buenos Aires. When I say just come back and in January, and I think I saw that place. <laughs> no, it, 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 was ama it amazed me because it was literal trees. It was the hanging gardens of Babylon. Exactly. It was just vines swaying in the wind. And, um, and now that you've mentioned the jade plant, I've got to work on mine, um, which isn't doing very well. But I do think it's fascinating that, that there are these very simple ideas that can make your life so much better um, that they're not to be scoffed at. Exactly. And I like uh, using orchids also, like cymbidiums and what's it, Pelionopolis, because an orchid will give you three months of its life. They're not, they're not high-maintenance plants. They're actually very, very happy just getting a little water now and then. Do not overwater me. <laughs> what, what projects are you working on now? I know you've done that once, that spa in in Portugal that you did years ago, I, I really want to visit badly. In you the, have um, to. You've just expanded it. Ah. So it's, what are you uh, working on now? Well, we're, we're actually converting um, one, well, a couple of the villas that are on the grounds of the spa, working in Portugal. We're working in uh, Bariloche in Argentina on doing a very small luxury hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, wellness hotel on the very steep slope going down to Lago Moreno. We're doing a very big hotel in the Cayman Islands where, where we're doing a special garden, doing moon viewing garden, a place where you can dance and all sorts of things for the Hyatt. And we're also doing a lovely house um, up near Rhode Island, a really, really ancient house. <laughs> and we're breathing new life into it mm -hmm. and really respecting the old lady and um, putting in lots of window seats because people love window seats. People have this voyeur thing in them, even if they are just looking out at their garden growing. There's something about sitting in a window seat, right? Well, I, I think, I think um, a window seat adds so much to a, a house, a room. I'd, I'd love to add one to my dining room. I think part of it is the sense of enclosure. It's a sense of, of enclosure. Yeah, and safety, safety while you're observing. I mean, it's the um, sort of thing that makes you sort of, uh, in a way, become a child again. Exactly, exactly. You know, My third house in Ireland had a huge window seat. It was built by a woman who was my, my, my father's aunt, and she had loved the balconies in Norway, so... It was a very simple house, but as kids, we could actually sleep out on the deck, which actually went all around the house. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge window seat, about 15 feet long. It was a small house, but this huge window seat was where I spent most of my life when I was at home. And you spend a lot of time indoors in Ireland because of the rain. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But at the same time, you're in that window seat looking out onto the landscape. Looking at the landscape, uh, seeing my horse munching away and, um, and, and reading, because a, a window seat is probably the best place to read. Good armchair by the fire is pretty good too, but I love window seats to read. And so you're part of something, a part, part of everything, but still a part of everything. Cloda, thank you very much for talking 
today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Say hello to Danielle for me. I will indeed. The ADSC is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.